Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we talk about some cinema chain boycotts in Korea, the Wolf Warriors sequel being caught in a lawsuit, the New York Asian Film Festival announces its lineup for 2017, and for our films this week, Joshua, Teenager vs. Superpower, and the next edition of the DC Cinematic Universe, Wonder Woman. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host sitting here in sunny South Florida, Paul Fox. And coming to us from his news desk on the top of Mount Olympus is the demigod himself, Mr. Kevin Ma. God, demigod. <laughs> at, at the most end, uh, 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 never mind. Okay. Hi, Paul. Hey, hey, everybody. <laughs> You're like the half-brother of uh, Hercules, right? <laughs> I'm like the uglier, fatter, disowned. I'm like I'm like the um. God, what's the the the, the what's his name? Uh, short guy on uh on Game of Thrones. Um, what's his uh, name? Peter Dinklage. Uh, Tyrion. Yeah, what's his character's name? Tyrion. Yeah, I'm like the Tyrion, the Tyrion of that family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what's your what's your demi? What would be your demigod power? Sleeping in cinemas, or what would you choose? <laughs> uh, be really good at directions, which is mm. what I have in real life. <laughs> All right, excellent. <laughs> So, um, how are you doing, sir? Things are hot there over in Hong Kong and rainy here in Florida, so not too sunny. How's everything else going? Uh, it's all right. Just, you know, a bit tired because, you know, it's summer and it's hot and it's humid and it's really easy to get exhausted. And, of course, I'm busy running the, the site Asian cinema. So, you know, losing a lot of sleep, just, you know, doing writing for that website. But uh, it's good. Readership is, is smooth, uh, steady. I think there's a nice little steady stream rising, increasing number of readers. Thanks to uh, the shout out from uh, Love HK Film and, and some you know Twitter presence. Um, but you know, yeah, things are good. Things are all right. How about yourself, Paul? Yeah, it's summertime here. School's out. Uh, trying to find activities for my daughter to do that fall within our budget <laughs> that aren't going to break the <laughs> bank. Um, so you know, that's a challenge. Uh, it's the first time we've kind of had to do this because she's kind of at that age where she likes going to school, and now that she doesn't go to school, she's wondering what she's doing at home. She's a little bit stir crazy. And so we have to find things that we can do that, uh, you know, are going to be able to do continuously for various days throughout the summer rather than just kind of dumping her in a summer camp that's going to cost, you know, $200, $300 a week or something. Uh, um, are we going to expect a, uh, a surprise cameo from Little Miss Fox? Uh, you know, anything's possible. Anything is possible. And uh, I guess, you know, now that it's summer, speak, speaking of family and everything, I'll probably take this time to make a small announcement um my wife is expecting we've known this for a while our close friends and, and you know family members people like kevin have known too i have i'm not big on you know doing the social big social media rollouts of stuff like this like a lot of families are not that i have anything against it it's just you know not my style um but i do make mention of this because 
longtime listeners may remember that when, you know, Little Miss X came along, we kind of put the show on a hiatus for about a year and a half. Um, and that was for me giving me time to adjust to being a father rather than not being a father. And also Kevin had some things going on um, in his professional life, too, that just made it make sense. Now, with the new one coming along, uh, you know, I'm not sure what to expect, but I kind of know what to expect. It's, you know, uh, sort of in that position of what to expect when you're expecting kind of thing. We've been through this before, um, so we kind of know what we're doing, we think. Uh, as a result, uh, I'm going to do my best to not put the show on an extended hiatus. I think once the baby arrives, probably for a month or so, I'm not going to be able to get out to see much. But I should have, you know, uh, help enough here with family and friends close by um, that I should have at least an hour of free time a week to, to sit down and do some recording. So my plan currently is to keep the show going uh, as smoothly as possible without interruption. But there may be you know, and this is going to be towards the end of the summer, uh, a period of time where we're off for a couple weeks, um, just as things, you know, in the household get a little bit situated. So that's, that's the plan, the general plan going forward. And hopefully, uh, I'll be able to stick to it. Um, so, you know, again, I, I just want to allay everyone's fears. There is no, no plan to go off, go away for another year and a half, like we did last time, at least not right now. So, <laughs> Uh, we should still be here and still going strong, um, you know, come the end of the year and, and into 2018. All right, that's enough of that small talk. So let's get into our news proper this week. And I will throw the ball back over to Kevin's court with this week's news. Over here at the news desk, um, it just seems like this this endless uh, Netflix talk is is still going. Um, this week, the latest update in the, 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 the Netflix debate that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, um, Okja is, the, the Bong Joon-ho film is still planned for theatrical release in Korea on the 29th of June, um, or 28th, I think. Uh, anyway, it, it is meant to be on a day and date release with Netflix in Korea, but the problem is now all three major Korean cinema chains, uh, CGV, Megabox, and Latte have announced that they will be boycotting the film. Which means that um, they take up ninety. I had ninety one percent in my website, but Variety Report today said that they hold ninety three percent of all screens in Korea. Which means that ninety three percent of all cinemas in Korea will not be showing the film. Um, so of course, the the reasoning is that they don't like that the Netflix is disrupting the the sort of real, the ecosystem of the of the the the, the Korean film industry. Um, I think Korea already has one of the shortest uh, film-to-on-demand window in the world. Uh, films, at least local releases, um, uh, come out to uh, video on demand. I mean, like paid uh, IPTV or, or like an iTunes-esque uh, video on demand service. It only takes about three weeks. Um, so it already has a very short window, and and cinemas probably don't don't like that already. But they play the game. I mean, they play along the rules. So when they hear that Netflix wants to release this film day and date on the same day as the cinema release, they all balked. Um, and now they refuse to show the film. At least two cinemas in Seoul are still planning to show the film. Uh, one of them has 11 screens at independent theater. Um, 
but it depends on whether uh, the distributor, who is the only one of the four major distributors in Korea to not have its own cinema chain, um, it, what, it depends on whether this company, Next Entertainment World, can can negotiate with the independent cinemas to see if they can get them to show the film. Uh, Paul, what do you what do you think about this latest development? This this um, pressure that cinema is putting on Netflix films. Well, I mean, I okay. Is it going to matter to Netflix if they're going to be streaming on Netflix in uh, in Korea, right? I mean, I'd be curious to know what the sort of audience reaction on social media to this kind of thing is. I mean, it seems like, you know, young people might take offense to this. I don't know. Well, I, I think... I I think older generation would take offense to this because they don't have Netflix. I mean, younger people, they can always figure these type of things out. These people are the ones who use the internet platforms to watch films the most. Um, and, of course, Netflix to them does marketing for them. All right. these talk about Okja every day is, is essentially marketing for them because it's about raising noise. And the fact that cinemas are boycotting this film means that people have to turn to Netflix to watch the film, of course, or piracy, whatever. Um, so are the theaters sort of stabbing, shooting themselves in the foot? Is this little protest going to mean anything in the long run? Um, I don't know. It is one of the most anticipated films. I mean, Bong Joon-ho is one of Korea's most successful filmmakers and highest profile. He's one of those people whose just his name on a film would be enough to bring people in. That's how that's how anticipated this film is. So it's a matter of, okay, is this going to help those that 7% of independent cinemas? Or what? Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess it's like, all right, if they said we're going to take something really big like uh, the Justice League movie or maybe Star Wars Episode Nine or Episode Eight, which is later this year, I guess, and we're going to put it on streaming. And, you know, if you're streaming, you can get access to it day and date. But we're also going to put it in the cinemas. And if that's something that, like, all right, I've got sort of a history with the film or a history with the director, maybe I would go out and watch it in the cinemas anyway, right? Um, just out of the pure, pure nostalgia of it. But then if the theaters say, well, you know, we don't like what Netflix is doing, so we're not going to do that, well, I'm still going to watch it on... You know, it's it's like, okay, if you're going to close off the avenue altogether, then you're absolutely not going to get my money. Yeah. But if you left it open, maybe you would get my money, right? It's... It just seems like a a weird thing to do with with a, with a piece of popular culture or a popular director, right? I mean, I mean, Korea it's it's a very film going heavy country. I think you have one of the biggest, the highest, you know, film going per capita rate. I mean, it, it, across all demographic, people go watch films in Korea. They are very, especially for local films. Local films have a have a majority um, uh, uh, share market share in Korea. So. Um, this is gonna this is gonna be a film that attracts multiple demographic, including demographics that don't have Netflix or do, that don't watch movies on the internet. So, so it, it, it's almost like is this really the right form of protest? Should at least one of the free cinema chains um, have come out and go like, "Whoa, screw you two, Latte or whatever CGV. I'll have exclusive access. I'll have people watching the film." Or it, was this a good commercial opportunity that they missed out on? Or was this a worthy protest? I mean, mm-hmm. if you talk about protecting the sanctity of the cinema going experience, shouldn't you give that experience, give that choice to the consumer? Because at, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, I could, it's a crowded summer. It's a crowded summer, and the people that lose out is the audience. I could see. I it seems like they're 
should be an easily achievable middle ground with something like this, right? Where, because Netflix can control their content regionally. So, you know, if they're going to do screenings in Korea, they say, all right, it's going to open on, you know, July 20th, and then we'll let it run in theaters for a week, give people early access there, and then on July 27th, it drops on Netflix, right? It's, well, Netflix it, is not going to budge on this because Netflix's main goal is to get subscribers. Right. So for them, to, it doesn't help them to open. It only helps the distributor. That It, it helps them achieve the, the, the condition that Bong Joon-ho stated when he signed up to make the film because opening in Korean cinemas, that was demanded by Bong Joon-ho. So it only only satisfied the the, 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 the the contract that they have. It's not really their main goal. It doesn't help them financially, of course, because right. they have a local distributor doing this. But, I mean, going forward, it seems like in future contract negotiations, that could be something that's pretty easily achievable. I mean, sure, a theater is probably not going to like the fact that, well, we only have it for a week, and then, you know, it's going to be on streaming the following week. But even so, it's, you know, it's 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 an option. It's kind of like the reverse option of, of advanced um, screenings on, like, iTunes that they were doing for a while. I remember when uh, Gareth Edwards' uh, film Monsters was doing um, small film circuits, right? It was out there in, in theatrical release, but you had the option to uh, rent it for like double the normal rental price on iTunes. And that's how I ended up seeing it because I, you know, none of the screenings that they were having at the time were suitable for my schedule. So it's kind of like they could do a reverse of that and still get cinema play and work that into the contract and... I don't know, you know, maybe the cinemas just won't go for it. But it's, it seems like there's a there's a pretty achievable middle ground to negotiate through in, in future terms. It depends on how much how much leverage the filmmaker has and how, how willing Netflix is willing to budge because Netflix is the one that's not budging here. They're not going to do a exclusive theatrical window. Um, I think if filmmakers even try to ask for this, Netflix might not budge. So it became it might have be, it might become a, a a option between getting your film funded over a one month theatrical window mm. or not. Is it worth arguing? Um, I don't know. I mean, Bong Joon seems pretty unfazed by it. He's like, I got to make the film. My film got funded. It's paid for. You know, it's gonna show all across the world. So he seems pretty unfazed by it. But like I said, at the end of the day. It's the audience that lose that lose out. Uh, on to our next news, uh, Wolf Warriors. This is the, is this the same Wolf Warriors uh, with Wu Jing? That very one, yeah. So Wu Jing, after the first film made a ton of money in China, um, Wu Jing got to work on a sequel. Um, this time, uh, Wu Jing, the Wolf Warrior in the film, goes to Africa and I guess saves all of Africa with the the pride of the Chinese people. I think that's the idea, but um, but the film is is set to release uh in China on July twenty eighth, but it's been caught in a lawsuit. Um, one of the four investors of the original film, a company called Wuhan Legend, is is taking uh Wu Jing's company to court, um, because uh Wu Jing went well Wu Jing's company went ahead and made a sequel without the permission or the participation of Wuhan Legend, which is one of the four, which is a minor investor, uh, I think, on the film. Uh, so the the company claims that since you know it it co-invested the original film, it holds a stake in the Wolf Warrior brand name, and therefore uh, it should either have been a co-producer on the sequel, or it should have been you know it should have come you know 
they should have gotten per- given permission to Wu Jing's company to make the sequel. So it's brought the case to court, and the Beijing court, uh, Haidan District Court, has accepted the lawsuit. And uh, I'm not sure when it will be heard in court, but um, this the company is Wuhan Legend is asking for 10 million in damages and a complete stop to the release of the film on all platforms in cinema, uh, on 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 internet platforms, and also on television. Um, so the what so the case hinges on whether the court decides that um, this this one investor does indeed hold a stake in the film or not. I mean, because the Wu Jing's company and the main co-investor state, they insist that this 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 company d- does not hold a stake in the brand name because it claims that Wu Jing's company is the sole sole copyright holder of this brand and therefore it has the right to to make a sequel without asking anyone's permission except its own. So it all comes down to whether the court finds that uh, and of course, Wu Jing's company also also says that there's been no document proving that Wuhan Legend holds the right to or holds part of the right to the film. So it all comes down to whether the court will find that this 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 uh, company Wuhan Legend does indeed hold a stake or not. There is actually um, uh, um, a case before that deals with this, uh, Lost on Journey, uh, which is the film with Xu Zhen and Wang Bao Chang. Uh, one of the the co-producers of that film. Uh, actually sued the producer of uh, Lost in Thailand, which, of course, as we all know, became like a super mega hit um, because the company of Lost uh, that make Lost in Thailand misled the audience thinking that um, that it's a sequel to Lost on Journey. And since if it is indeed a, a sold on the fact that it's a sequel to Lost on Journey, the, all the producers and the stakeholders of the first of Lost on Journey, the, the, you know, should have gotten a, a piece of the pie. Um, the company that sued actually won, so Enlight had to pay a, a, a very small damage uh, uh, fee to the company, and it's appealing, but that was like two years ago, and there's no news of the appeal. So there is um, a previous case where, where the one of the producers of an original film sued the producer for making another producer for making a sequel of us permission. So it seems like the effect, the, the release of the Wolf Warrior sequel may be affected. After all, if the court decides to uh, also once again um, um, decide, you know, or, or, or favor favor the, uh, the 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 prosecution side or the um, yeah, so interesting sort of bit of uh, law, you know, litigation going on in Chinese film industry. It, it's a very speculative world out there, and and you know, got a lot of companies trying to get into the film industry by investing in films, uh, and then. Once you have, you know, when we watch Chinese films, you always complain that there are too many companies which result in too many logos and too many producers. And so, you know, because this is all done to to uh, soften the uh, financial risk of the companies. But when you have, you know, films that have like 20 companies in the kitchen, when you try to do something with it, then you got too many stakeholders trying to get in and trying to benefit from from the the the, the, the success of the original film. So this, this is just another one of those cases of, this this burgeoning film industry, you know, growing pains of this big commercial industry trying to figure out what are the rules of engagement, right? It, so for me, it's it's a bit interesting. Yeah, I think it's all just about you know the old uh, Jerry Maguire line: "Show me the money," right? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, of course, it's all this, about money. This stuff goes on in Hollywood too. I mean, it's like somebody 
feels like they were a part of something and, and you know, maybe legally they are or, or, or not, but, you know, it's always usually about, yeah, just let's, uh, you know, give me a payout and I'll go away and shut up. And hopefully this isn't something that will totally sideline the film. You know, they're not asking for a uh, stupendous amount of money that would, you know, kill any value that the film has as a film. If that's the case, if it's like, you know, they're they're really going to go after ruining uh, Wu Jing's company because they've got the connections sort of the behind the scenes or in the courts or that kind of nonsense. My advice to Wu Jing would be just put the film out there on YouTube. <laughs> you <know? laughs> the problem is the, uh, the Wu Jing's company has signed, even before it went to production, it signed the 800 million RMB minimum guarantee agreement with the distributors, mm. with distributors, which means that the distributor already paid 800 mil is guaranteed to pay 800 millions, 800 million RMB to the producers of the film to for distribution rights. And if the film doesn't come out in the 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 the, the, the time frame that was in the contract, uh, Wu Jing's company and the producer they'll have to pay this fee back in full with interest. Hmm. So there's a lot of money at stake here, and it's not just the release date. The release date is July 28th. It's within the time frame. It's about 800 million RMB of minimum guarantee agreement. That's uh, that apparently has a a, a, bunt, a a big bulk of it has already been paid to to Wu Jing's company because it was signed. It was essentially signed to fund the film. Right. So um, it just is gonna. So there's a lot more at stake. I mean, the, the the company Wuhan Legend. They're only asking for 10 million RMB, but of course the big thing they're asking for is to stop the film's release. They want to cease the film's release. Period. So if that happens. That's a lot more money here at stake. So this this could get interesting for Wu Jing's uh, career in the film. Now back over to uh, the West Coast side of things here in the States. We have um, New York Asian Film Festival news. Yes, the, I think what I think is the best showcase of Asian cinema in uh, North America uh, has announced their lineup for, for 2017. Uh, the festival this year is happening between... Uh, July 30th to the, the 16th in New York City. Um, they're showing a, a total of 57 films, including three international premieres, 21 North American premieres, and four U.S. premieres. Uh, their opening film this year is a Thai film, Bad Genius, uh, which is a hit thriller uh, this year about uh, straight-A students who, are, who stage a heist to steal SAT results for, for their friends in, the, in Thailand. Um, that film's the opening film. The closing film is uh, Korean action thriller The Villainous, which uh, was shown in uh, Cannes as a midnight uh, midnight screening. Um, and the centerpiece gala, they they have been, they've been putting on a, a pretty you know interesting focus on Southeast Asian cinema in the last couple of years. So the centerpiece gala this year is the North American premiere, premiere of a Filipino film called Birdshot, which I had a chance to see in uh, Taipei or sorry in Osaka. Uh, but I'll try to catch it in Taipei when I go to the next month uh, for the film festival. Um, this year, the biggest the new addition um, is the competition section. Uh, this is the first time they have su- such a section. Um, the, sec- the competition will be exclusively for uh, films by first and second time, second time directors who are having uh, the North American premiere of the films at the festival. So this is a way to attract more North American premieres to the festival. And the competition films include Bad Genius, Birdshot, a uh, Japanese film called Double Life, a uh, Taiwanese film called Gangster's Daughter, 
uh, Vietnamese film called KFC, a South Korean indie called Jane, and Hong Kong's very own uh, With Prisoners, which was a kind of a small release, had a small release, and actually built it did fairly well here. Unfortunately, I missed it here in cinemas. That's why we haven't talked about it on the show. Um, but that film is, you know, we have an international premiere in 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 in, in New York, um, and. Uh, this year, they're, they're, they're shining also a spotlight on young Hong Kong directors uh, as part of their Hong Kong panorama. So rather than the Creative Visions program that's been that's traveling the world, they put together their own um, uh, program that's highlighting young directors. Um, the films include uh, Mad World, uh, This Is Not What I Expected, which I think we talked about in the show, um, Zombieology, uh, the zombie film, which I subtitled, actually, and uh, Soulmate. Uh, vampire cleanup department and of course with prisoners um the awards uh this year's uh lifetime achievement award is going to tony learn Ka fi that's is that that's little tony or big oh that's big tony right yeah it's big tony so best big tony and big tony will apparently be attending the festival um and the festival will be showing cold war 2 johnny toe's election and the taking of tiger mountain in 3d um in in honor of big tony the star asia award will go to hot Frog. Gundam Wan, uh, who's who's been in some of Korea's biggest films. Uh, last year he was in The Priest, uh, which I liked a lot, which is a great great little supernatural thriller, by the way. And also Violent Prosecutor. Um, and this year he'll be here. He'll be in New York for Vanishing Time, A Boy Who Returned, a little sci-fi fantasy um, that I saw in Udine. Uh, the Rising Star Asia Award will be given to uh, and excuse my pronunciation, Chudaman. Uh, Chancharok Sukien, uh, the 21 year old year old model who stars in um, uh, Bad Genius. Um, uh, apparently, this is her feature film debut, and her performance is so great that they decided to give her a Rising Star Asia Award. Uh, ticketing uh, tickets go on sale on June 15th. Uh, once again, the the film festival starts on the um, the, the, the 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 30th. Uh, until the 16th in New York. So if you're visiting New York City or if you're around the region, uh, be sure to uh, pay them a visit. All right. Our final bit of news this week, we touched on this uh, a couple weeks ago, and it looks like it's finally starting to happen. Uh, Singapore is starting to roll out some of their uh, TV dramas onto Netflix. Yes. Um, so MediaCorp, uh, the... Um National broadcaster in Singapore, they sold uh, 20 of their, their Chinese language series um, to Netflix, and they finally made their way um, to to Netflix. Um, friend of the show, uh, Marcos Barnberg, of course, told us that. So now two, they have two of the shows. Uh, I forgot what two of the shows already. It's, One uh, is called Mind Game. Mind Game and The Dream Job. Right, so those two shows are already on there, and uh, according to friend of the show, Mark Responbert, there will be 18 more on the way. Uh, not sure what the timeline is. Uh, but yeah, so if you're a fan or you're trying to explore what Singapore is doing on their television, um, go ahead and take a look. Unfortunately, they would not be including, I think the deal does not cover any of the Channel 5 English language shows. So right now, only the, uh, sorry, Channel 8, I think, is the English channel. So right now, you're only getting the Channel 5 Chinese language series, which are all in Mandarin. I believe, but they're all English subtitled. Yeah, and if uh, Netflix is not your thing too, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, you can check out the Toggle app. All right, that's going to wrap it up for our news section. We will take a short musical break and we'll be back to talk about our first film this week, Joshua, Teenager versus Superpower. I 
And welcome back. So for our East Screen review, um, kind of something a little bit different. Again, creeping over into the Netflix realm. This is a Netflix original of sorts um, called Joshua Teenager vs. Superpower, which focuses on the scholarism founder and student leader and activist Joshua Wong. So, Kevin, uh, we've both seen this, but as usual, I will let you take the lead on the East Screen film. All right. So Joshua vs. Superpower. Uh, it's not quite a netflix original the film um was independently produced um and then it was uh taken to sundance it has international uh, world premiere sundance and that's where netflix uh scooped it up with a worldwide rights so there was an independent production um and netflix is just a distributor uh for the show that's weird because as i look at it on netflix they do put the logo so it's right because they because they like, hold the because they hold the exclusive exclusive worldwide rights. Right. So therefore, they call it an original. Yeah, mm. that's that's the way it works. So not all yeah. all Netflix originals are created the same. Is, is what we the conclusion we draw from this? Well, essentially, what Netflix does is that they fund. Let's say they buy the rights of a film or they buy the rights of a TV show, and in that 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 pay the price they pay essentially either pays for production or they snapped it up and and became the exclusive distributor. So um, a lot of times Netflix not doesn't always fund their own shows. A lot of times they buy the rights from production companies. So that that, that this is how generally the TV TV uh, industry works anyway, and even in other other networks. So anyway, okay. So that little that little bit of business out of the way. Um, this is a film by Joe Piscatella. Uh, he's a foreigner, obviously, not from Hong Kong. Um, the film is also produced by Matthew Torn, uh, who also did a documentary about student activists in Hong Kong called Lessons in Descent. One of the main characters is Joshua Wong, so it's not a surprise that you know he would be involved with this production. Um, you know, it's a documentary, but the story, quote unquote story, this is a profile of Joshua Wong, the founder of Scholarism, who became a leader of the student activist movement in Hong Kong during the national education protests and the uh, subsequent umbrella movement, which took place in late 2014. Um, we're not going to talk about the politics of the film, obviously. I mean, whether you agree with the politics or not, that doesn't really matter. We're just going to try and look at it uh, on the merit of, of the film itself. But in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that, you know, I've obviously I've been in this protest. I, I witnessed all these happening and I, um, I, I I witnessed all these and I even, you know, actually donated some money to Demosisto, uh, which is the political party that Joshua Wong eventually co-founded. Um, and I also voted for this candidate uh, for the Legislative Council uh, last year. Um, so there, get that bit out of the way. Um so while watching it, you know, having been, you know, it's hard to impartially judge this film because, you know, having lived through it and knowing all the little details, I found myself actually picking on what the film left out rather than than how it presented um, a story. Um, and it did leave out quite a bit. 
And honestly, I had a bit of an anxiety attack watching this film because it reminded me of all the turmoil that Hong Kong's seen and and all the turmoil of the student movement and all the all, you know umbrella movement and reminded me how all that turned out. And there's no real spoilers here if you follow Hong Kong politics or Hong Kong news uh, that you know doesn't really turn out well. It's a bit an odd time to be doing a profile on Joshua Wong because. I think that his story is not quite completed. I think we're still in the middle of his story. Um, so if you try to tell his story at this point in history, it's quite negative because it comes out, you know, we all know how Umbrella Movement uh, ended. It ended in failure. So at this point, it, it's kind of like ending the Star Wars trilogy on Empire Strikes Back, right? Um, like the story isn't really fully told. So it, it's weird that there are so many sort of portrayals of, Joshua Wong out there. I mean, this is at least a second documentary on him. There are also a few documentaries on the Umbrella, Umbrella Movement. Um, and of course, Joshua Wong is going to play a big part in those because he is one of the leaders of that movement. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's okay to not expect a balanced portrayal of the issues. Um, I accept that because I see this film, I don't see this film as a, um, a balanced journalistic piece it's not meant to be a journalistic piece the title already tells you that it's a character study it's completely done in his view and it's about him it's about joshua wong um and of course it's going to side with his politics and it was never meant to be a balanced um uh piece of news news making or or news documentary it's not going to show both sides it's not going to talk to you know, pro-government representatives about Joshua Wong is it, it's it's obviously going to be elevating this guy into a sort of a, a almost a messiah, right? Almost like this this ultra, you know, this miracle figure. Um, and it's sort of a, a, a I think it's a student movement for dummies introduction. It skims on a lot of details. It, um, for example, when it talks about how the umbrella movement broke out, it skipped the entire timeline because, as far as I remember, I actually distinctly i remember it that the timeline of that day very clearly um it actually broke out in over just a few hours from the the actual occupation of the streets to the uh, police tear gassing the prote- protesters which is a big turning point of the protest um it 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 only happened in a matter of hours but the film sort of presented the timeline in a very jumbled manner and of course it skimps on you know uh, quite a bit of details about you know the movement and and Joshua's involvement and and all that stuff. It does it does deal with the rift between scholarism and Benny Tai, who is the sort of the leading one of the three leading organizers of the Occupy movement. Because what a lot of people think was that Josh um, Joshua Wong's scholarism um, hijacked the Occupied Central um, uh, movement because it was originally meant to be happening in Central. Except that when the Joshua, when Joshua Ron scholars, scholarism held the protest at the government headquarters, which is about a, a, a mile away from Centro, it moved the entire sort of Occupy movement up to Admiralty, and that sort of caused a rift between the two parties. They think that scholarism hijacked Benny Tai's movement. Uh, so it deals a, a bit a bit with that, but it doesn't quite deal with the internal rift that's happening between the, the pro-democracy camp. Uh, as we know, there's that localist movement that popped up last year, and it sort of, it sort of separated itself from scholarism and, and the other, the, you know, the leading organizers of Occupy, uh, of Occupy or, or Umbrella Movement. And there's been also, you know, so there's been that, that 
rift within that camp and it's just sort of too much complexity right uh i think people like simple narratives and a simple narrative is that there's about this a david goliath story david versus goliath story is about this kid taking on china it's a very simple narrative that that you know these documentaries like to take and it's a simple narrative that that you know kind of easily labeled the characters as certain things and and so if you know, if you don't know anything about Hong Kong politics, but if you're curious, this is a good starting point. I think it's a good starting point, but it's not the comprehensive uh, 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 portrayal of what happened. Um, it seems like, uh, if I'm looking at the credits, it seemed like the film sourced a lot of footage from elsewhere. Um, I, I think uh, Sochrec, which is like a uh, independent. Journalistic, journalistic organization here in Hong Kong. There's a lot of footage from them. There's a lot of footage from other political, the pro-democracy camp parties. There's uh, footage from local media uh, and things like that. Um, so I'm not sure how much the director actually shot himself. Um, uh, the film doesn't really show Joshua Wan a private setting. We see him at his home, but we don't see him interacting with his family a lot. We don't see um, him interacting with his friends. In fact, you know, the film tries to portray Joshua Wan as this robot, and even his friends say that he's like a robot and that he has no life and that he's, he, he devotes all his efforts into this movement, but the fact is he has a girlfriend. Or he had a girlfriend. We don't know if he's still with his girlfriend, but he has a girlfriend and he has a life and he's a private life. Um, and the film also left out certain facts about his family. For example, his father is actually an ultra-conservative uh, activist who is one of the leaders in um, withholding rights for LGBTQ people in Hong Kong. He's, uh, he's very much an ultra-religious uh, 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 figure here in Hong Kong, uh, and he leads certain movements. For example, when HSBC had the statues out um, to support LGBTQ rights, Joshua Wong's father was one of the figures who, who came out against it. Or when the government um, uh, uh, ruled, the courts ruled in favor of same-sex couples uh, getting getting uh, uh, rights, uh, getting, I think, domestic partnership rights, he was also one of the leading figures against that ruling. So the film kind of conveniently left that out, um, and I think it's interesting because that's always been kind of a stickling, sort of a, a, a point that a criticism towards Joshua Wong that, you know, he doesn't, you know, his, his own father is, you know, is kind of anti-human rights. Um, so I think that's an interesting fact that the film le left out, again, for in favor of a simple narrative. Um, so, so, you know, if you know the events, if you're familiar with the events, there's really no need to watch the film. In fact, you, you'd probably be distracted um, thinking about what it left out or how it's presenting what's going on. Um, and that's what happened to me. I don't think the documentary is particularly well made. I don't think that it's very comprehensive. I think it's okay. It's an interesting introduction. It's good for foreigners who don't really know anything about Hong Kong politics. Um, but for me, I, I found that I, I was left wanting. I thought it was really way too simplistic. Um, but, you know, it's, it is what it is. Um, it's kind of hard to judge the film on whether it's good or bad. Um, if, because I have to be in a position of someone who doesn't know anything to find it whether it's compelling or not. For me, as someone who lived through this period, who, you know, is was kind of, who has that, who is on that political spectrum on the same side, um, I didn't find it particularly compelling or interesting um, or even um, educational. So um, it all depends on where you come from, right? So, Paul, you also familiar with the history. So what do you think of the film? 
Yeah, similar to you. I I mean, I was at ground zero. Um, my the the center where I taught at is basically right there in Admiralty, where all this kind of went down. So I had a very front and center firsthand look at it. I had students who would be in my class, and then, you know, because of where our center was located, it was easy for them to attend class and then leave class and just go right downstairs to the protest, you know, whereas a lot of students were boycotting classes like at, you know, uh, Chinese U and other places because, you know, it's far for them to travel. But my students were good because they would come up and <laughs> they'd sit in my lecture and then they'd just go right back down. Um, and so day after day after day, I was there um, not t- taking part in the protest because even though I have Hong Kong residency, I didn't, I, I don't feel like I have the, the, the right to be a, uh, uh, what, what is the word for it? Uh, <laughs> foreign force, I guess. <laughs> Other than than executing my rights to vote, which I've always done, and but you know seeing seeing the things unfold, watching the the tear gas you know happen, all seeing all that again, uh, like you, I didn't want to say I had an anxiety attack, but it, it kind of took me back to those days. But I pretty much agree with you. I think you're spot on. I mean, this is very much um, a, a single sided portrayal. I mean, and it's clear right there in the title. I mean, you just read the title, Teenager versus Superpower. That's kind of already setting up um, the idea of what position this is taking. And I do agree. I think that it looks like a lot of the footage was footage that was being released at the time things were happening. I remember, like, especially the drone footage. I remember seeing that drone footage being put up on social media on Facebook, like, the day that that stuff was being done, right? And so the director, I think, really only went in and shot interviews. Um, But I will say that it does kind of seamlessly integrate the video from multiple sources. So it doesn't look like, you know, when they're taking video from 2012 and and meshing it in with interviews from uh, a year ago, it doesn't really seem like it's, um, you know, mismatched all that much. And perhaps that's the state of, you know, video technology today, that they can, you know, edit things together in HD and it it all looks pretty good, looks like it fits together. Um, But yeah, this is a thing that if you are not a big fan of Joshua Wong, um, some of this may be a turnoff for you. Uh, For me, Joshua has always felt like sort of a one-note song or robot, as they refer to him. I've I've seen him in action before. I've watched him on Hong Kong City Forum, which is kind of like... Uh, kind of like their version of Meet the Press, basically. <laughs> Although what they do is they go out to a park in Hong Kong and they have a table and they get opposing sides to debate and argue and there's a there's people sitting in chairs watching uh, and they broadcast it on TV. And, you know, he, he has a mode of operation, a mode of engagement where he starts talking about an issue and at a certain point he starts yelling about an issue. And... For me, that, that's just a personal turnoff, um, that, that kind of, you know, I'm going to talk over you and I'm going to shout you down kind of engagement. I know that it's a popular style for many politicians in Hong Kong to do that as well, not just him. But for me, that's just not a, a style I find particularly engaging and or I, I, I like people who are a bit more clever with their verbiage. And he's young, you know, and, and he's he can grow. He can, you know, learn to become a better politician if, if that's what he wants to do.
So by extension, because for me, his political style doesn't really appeal to me, the moments when the film is really focused on him and sort of going over these moments again, um, that's when the, the documentary is a bit, a bit less interesting. Uh, when it's focusing on the other members of scholarism, like Agnes and 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 some of the others um, getting their perspective, uh, that's when I was more interested in this. Um, but you're right, it is very much sort of like a, you know, umbrella movement for dummies. It, it's interesting to see, you know, where this where the umbrella movement came from, starting out of really what I felt was a more important issue, the national education um, issue, because that was something that you know, working in education and having a child that was going to potentially be in the education system was very personal for me. So watching that kind of play out again, um, you know, I, I liked that part, but then seeing it spill over into um, the Occupy movement with Benny Tai and all of that. Um, yeah, we've seen that before. We're familiar with that. So um, there, there's not much there. It, it doesn't get into some of the deeper issues. It doesn't get into the yellow versus blue political alignments that emerged out of that. It doesn't really explore the opposing side, as I said, and as you pointed out, But because it, it's not supposed to. Um, it is trying to be a character piece, but that's, for me, where the weakness is. Um, Joshua became the face of all this because he's young, because he was able to stand in front of the cameras and just, you know, be not really charismatic, I would say, but just be natural in spouting you know, the ideological lines that he wanted to without being nervous, without stumbling. Um, and he was able to do it continuously. And he was able to put on not really a show, but, you know, to, to draw attention as a result. And that's the currency of all this stuff, right? Attention. So because of that, he's taken the forefront um, over some of the other members, although, um, you know, they did go on to found the, the Demetisto party. And who was it? Nathan won, right, Kevin? Nathan Law did win, yeah. yes. So Nathan, so he's, you know, if, if anything really good comes out of this, I think it's that Nathan was actually able to go on from this and, and get a seat. Although that's, is he is his seat being contested still? or It's being contested, but he's still in the Let's right. Go right now. You know. Yeah. Um, and so as Kevin said, this, as a documentary, it's kind of incomplete. Because this whole situation is still going on. It's like the nationalism in education, which really was the foundation of scholarism, was chapter one. That went on to Occupy, which is chapter two. And they're kind of still in the middle of chapter three. So the director, I guess, just kind of wanted to get in here early uh, um, to get to get this out. Um, as a documentary, you know, as Kevin said, it... it it does feel like a lot of it is stock footage. Um, if you've followed along with stuff, again, you'll see stuff that you've seen before on social media and other sort of video feeds. But it doesn't it doesn't go into enough at the deeper level for me. I mean, there's no, like, on-the-street interviews with other people, with other people who are there. Um, when, you know, when these events happen, it's using some footage from news progr programs like Al Jazeera and stuff like that. Stuff that a standard, you know, documentary package is going to put together. It does try to interview some experts. Um, so beyond, you know, Joshua and some of the members of Scholarism, they talked to Clay Shirky, uh, academic and author of the book Here Comes Everybody. He's kind of a new media studies guy. Um, 
interesting choice to to go to him too. I guess be, I guess because of the sort of the new media angle. Um, they talked to Steve Zhang, who's written a great book called A Modern History of Hong Kong, and um, uh, you know I've I've gone to talks that he's given and I've read his book. I'm still in the process of reading his book. I'm maybe halfway through it because it's so big. Um, but it's a great book if you're in, just interested in Hong Kong history. It's probably probably the best of the history books out there. There are a couple others that have been out there over the years. Um, his is the more straightforward academic um, book compared with some of the others that I've read. Uh, Martin Lee, famous LegCo political member during the time, time of the handover. Um, Jeffrey Wasserstrom, who's another academic, written a book called China in the 21st Century. And, of course, some uh, there's a couple of local scholars and people like Benny Tai um, they interview as well. Um, but even so, it's still pretty light on, um, you know, who, who they're getting in touch with. Um, they, they don't go, again, there, there's no kind of on-the-street interviews. There's no interviews with people on the other side. You see a few scenes of Joshua's kind of home life. They t- talk to his mother a little bit, but really nothing from his dad. I think there was one shot of like his dad and his mom sitting on the couch and his mom did most of the talking. Um, don't know if that was by design, probably, as, as Kevin said. So, you know, it's um, it, it, it's it's really good if you're interested in Hong Kong politics, but you don't know a lot about what's happened. But Here's the conundrum. I think if you're interested in Hong Kong politics, you probably already know all this stuff because you've been following it. So it's kind of, a you know, who's the audience for then? Because if it's for somebody new, like maybe a new student of Asian studies or something, I think it's great. Um, but I think most people who are have had an interest in China watching and Hong Kong politics in particular, you're already pretty much going to be familiar with all of this. So... Um, it's still, it's fine. It's a film to watch if you're interested in that subject. If you're not, there's probably not a lot here for you if you're just, you know, a Hong Kong film fan, but you really have no interest in, you know, politics and you don't even know who Joshua Wong is. I mean, it might be a little bit interesting if you've heard of the Umbrella Movement and kind of want to know what that was about. Um, but beyond that, I think it's uh, pretty standard documentary stuff. Um, it would be interesting to, uh, Kevin, how do you think it stacks up to um, Lessons in Descent? I don't remember a lot of Lessons in Descent, actually, but I think Lessons in Descent did better in terms of showing their subjects in, in, in you know, private settings outside and um, you had a more and more following, sort of more shots of following these people through their lives. Um, but I, again, you know, it's, it's, of course, it takes a certain position and it takes a certain uh, stance towards these activists, and it is what it is. You know, like I said, um, I, I, it actually is interesting because that film was took the stance that Joshua Wan is not the only student activist out there. It took um, it, it covered um, another character who is a lesser known, who is not as famous, obviously, and he talks about how Joshua Wan takes a spotlight. So that was more interesting about covering more characters from the movement and the smaller characters who don't get as much as a spotlight as Joshua Wan here. It simplifies things, simplifies simplifies things, and and has this a bit more myopic view about who Joshua Wan is, and it almost makes it seem like he's like the only guy who is leading this movement. Even though you have shots of the other members talking about, you know, yeah, you know, we do just as much as Joshua, but you know, it, but you know, I guess we need a leader anyway. So that's interesting. But the film is that that this film is mostly concentrated on one character, whereas Lessons in Descent um, 
shows that it's more of a um, there are multiple characters involving in this 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 whole movement, and I think that that I found that more more interesting. And welcome back. Wonder Woman, the latest film in the DC Cinematic Entry universe, is a film from director Patty Jenkins, um, a female director added to the franchise this time, who um, probably notable for works like the movie Monster, among others. The cast featuring, of course, Gal Gadot as uh, Diana, a.k.a. Wonder Woman, Chris Pine as Steve Trevor, and Danny Houston, David the Lewis, as uh, sort of rounding out some of the other uh, aspects of the main cast. Uh, the story is pretty straightforward. If you're familiar with the origins of Wonder Woman, though they've kind of played with the timeline a little bit. Um, so set in the early 1900s when pilot Steve Trevor crash lands on the island of Themyscira, a.k.a. Paradise Island, uh, the island of the Amazons, he brings the modern world and World War I to the attention of the uh, island's inhabitants. Feeling certain that the god of war Ares is behind the global event, Diana travels back with Steve to Europe to try and locate Ares and defeat him. But is the modern world ready for a Wonder Woman like Diana? Um, so yes, this is an origin story and another entry into the DC Cinematic Universe, going back to Man of Steel and uh, Batman vs. Superman and... Uh, sort of setting the platform for the forthcoming uh, Justice League movie, which was actually one of the big trailers they had at the beginning of this uh, for my screening. So for me, it's the best of the DC entries to date, which is a good thing. I know a lot of people are raving about this film, um, and it's great, but it's still, for me, falling short of some of the bars set by um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I do think that it's great that they have a female director and have a female director's gaze and vision here for this film. Um, I think that helps the film greatly in terms of the characterization and in terms of some of the issues that are being bantered about about on social media, um, which we can talk about in just a little bit. But overall, I think it's still not quite as polished as some of the better Marvel, fil Marvel films out there. Um, and it still feels like DC is trying to play a little bit of catch up. They're getting there. They're learning their lessons slowly, right? Um, it seems so far with BVS and Suicide Squad, now this, they've made improvements um, each time. Um, and you're always going to have this rivalry. No matter what DC does, I think, you're always going to have people who are comparing one to the other. This is better than that. Um, you know, just like the Mac and PC rivalry or the Android and iOS rivalry, it's just going to happen. But for me, I enjoy both. And I'm trying not to be overly critical on one because I think they're doing a better job on the other. And I'm hopefully being as objective as I can. But um, still, overall, I think that, um, you know, Marvel, the, the, the plotting that Marvel has kind of laid out, even though it's starting to get a little bit of redundant, a little bit redundant in places, um, is paying off for them over the long term. And DC's 
just now, I think, getting to a point to where it feels like they are where they where Marvel was kind of back around the Iron Man 1 era, right? A straight, straightforward origin tale, if you know the story of Wonder Woman, Diana Prince, kind of her history, her background, uh, they lay that out here for you. A few changes in places. I'm not a Wonder Woman expert, to be sure, but, you know, I did watch the Linda Carter series back in the day, and I have read some Justice League, and I've seen... Uh, Justice League Unlimited and, and many of the animated shows, though the Wonder Woman animated one-offs as well. Um, and so they're playing with a lot of that history and some of the same characters uh, in familiar roles. For uh, some people, they've been talking about this uh, kind of the feminist agenda here. And there's a lot of that going around. I mean, is there a feminist agenda here? Maybe, if you're still living in the early 1900s. <laughs> But, I mean, beyond that, it seems pretty straightforward. You've got a tough action heroine in the figure of Wonder Woman. That's ex what she's supposed to be. That's expected of her. Um, I don't see much more feminism than I would see exhibited in, you know, a Ripley character back in Aliens or a Laura Croft Tomb Raider character. Um, the idea that this is coming from the position of a female director and you have female director's gaze, perhaps, at play... I think works well to the character, although, you know, there's still elements that could be argued of, you know, the, the, the idea of the ultimate construction of Wonder Woman as this sort of femme fatale Amazonian heroine who dresses slightly differently than Superman or Batman, um, you know, is still present. You can still get into those arguments, but the film doesn't waste time with a lot of that. Um, there's there's some stuff done for humor, but a lot of the humor is done at the expense of Steve Trevor, um, Chris Pine, who kind of has to take take the you know sort of the, the the blunt of the comedy. You know, in in a regular film in the old days, Steve Trevor, action hero, right, uh, war hero, that he would be your your lead, and so he's being constantly you know outshone here by Diana, aka Wonder Woman. Um, he does get a few moments to shine. My problem here with any of the characters is really his character because of the casting. And I don't know, I'll be curious to see what Kevin thinks about this uh, in just a moment. But because Chris Pine is already Kirk, in my mind, in the Star Trek series, I don't want to see him in major roles like this. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like if they, in the old days, if they would have gotten uh, William Shatner to be Steve Trevor in the in the Linda Carter Wonder Woman series. It's like, there are other actors out there, you know, you're already in this iconic role. You don't need to double up. Um, but, uh, you know, it's fine. It's fine. I got over it over time. But, you know, initially I'm just thinking, hey, Captain Kirk just crash landed on this island of Amazons. It's another Star Trek episode. <laughs> um, but that's just me. That's just my nerdiness taking over. Uh, I do think the film has the, a, the, the right amount of action, humor, and drama for my taste. That's definitely an improvement over the monotony that was, of course, the Superman films and even Batman v Superman to some extent. Um, but there's some things that they're doing which I really think are just too old school um, or even too film school for my taste, particularly the 11th hour reveal of the villain. Um They've already shown in shows like the first season of The Flash and elsewhere where you have a hidden villain that you can do things beyond simply jumping to the 11th hour surprise twist reveal. People come to expect that now, so you've got to be smarter with the writing, I think. 
and especially for fans of comics or shows or th- you know people who've encountered this already countless times you got to be a little bit more creative i think they could have gone a better route than this i saw it coming the the minute a, a particular actor showed up i was like okay i know i i i figured this out that's just me cuz you know maybe the general audience for mainstreamers like my parents that works okay but i think that um overall it's a little bit too color by numbers um and and i think that it, they they could have gotten a bit more creative with it uh when the big bad does kind of reveal himself though i was also a little bit disappointed cuz the actor playing him still looks like him and i'm thinking okay you are ares god of war uh you can look like anything why are you going to look like that <laughs> it's just it just it just seems it just feels weird to me i mean um that's just my own sort of personal aesthetics and again drawing back on how the character looks in the comics and the animated shows and things it's fine when he's in sort of the 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 subterfuge role and and everything but when he kind of makes his reveal i'm like all right he needs to look a little bit different uh uh because it just seems weird um so dc has also moved away from the ed end credit sequence on this one um for reasons i guess uh but uh so you don't necessarily need to to mire your way through to the end um if that's something you're used to doing gal gadot here i think looks better than she did in bvs uh, in her cameo there uh, a bit more toned a bit less model-esque she is wonder woman and i retract my criticisms of her that i made in bvs um, because i initially thought she was too much she, she the way they portrayed her in that she looked too much like a runway model and it didn't feel like she had the physicality that i think the character needed so um again I don't know if she hit the gym a lot. I mean, she's not super toned, but it looked like she was Wonder Woman for me in this film. So um, good on her and good on the director for the way that um, they choreographed her and they shot her. When the film ends, again, this is taking place mostly in, world, in the World War One time period. So around the 1915 to 1918 period, uh, I guess more towards 1918, towards the end of the war. But... There are a couple things that uh, don't make a lot of sense um, for war historians. I won't get into that here. So the span of the film is when she kind of goes into man's world. But then we also know that she's in the present day from, based on, you know, what happened in uh, the BVS films, uh, the BVS film from before. But so there's the, like this huge time gap and you're kind of wondering well, wait a minute, we kind of know certain things based on what was already established in, in BVS, so ha, what's going on here? And maybe they've left that open for future sequels, standalone films, but there's still a lot of questions um, to, to be asked. I will say that I was kind of hoping for a cameo or two that not, didn't really show up. I mean, they do touch on some other DC characters, um, villains and things, but not, I mean, it's pretty much straightforward just kind of wonder woman and and um her her opponents the main thing that kind of irks me though is cinematically the film still sticks with the washed out color palette that started back in the man of steel films continued on to batman v superman they moved a little bit away from it in the suicide squad movie uh but they're kind of fully back with it here with the exception of the island of themiscara when they're on paradise island um it's colorful it's vibrant it's it's nice, although it's a little bit too green screeny in places, but it still feels like a comic book color palette. 
which is one of the reasons I like the Marvel films, because the Marvel films, the way they're shot, they feel like a comic book color palette, whereas the Man of Steel film and Batman vs. Superman just felt like it was not. I mean, I know they were kind of more in the line of the Frank Miller, Dark Knight kind of stuff, which is fine, but when I think of DC, my mind goes back to you know, Superman, Justice League, action comics stuff, which is more vibrant, more bright. And also, you know, the cartoons, even Batman, the animated series tends to be dark and gray because it's Batman. But you get over to Superman or Justice League Unlimited. And again, characters like Wonder Woman, Superman, they tend to be bright and, and more vibrant in terms of their color tones. So I was, you know, I'm still uh, not a big fan of the color tone. And it looks like if you see the Justice League trailer, it's going to be more of the same in that. And so fine, okay, it just it's more it feels more like newsprint to me than comic books. And that's another reason why I tend to lean more towards um you know the 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 colors of the Marvel films. I mean just it's to compare like how most of this film looks to something like Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like night and day really just in terms of the the color schemes that are being used. So that's a personal preference that is is on me and uh, you know for other people they may not be bothered so much by that but overall best film of the dc cinematic releases so far fun enjoyable action summer movie so go see it and i don't think you'll be disappointed uh, kevin what did you think yes. of wonder woman i well i don't read comic books so that's where I'm coming from. Um, I, I I was okay with it, you know. I not of course I'm not a huge fan of the DC universe as we've talked about before. Um, so I I'm glad that they finally made a decent film. I don't think it's great. Um, it stumbles a bit around places, especially in the, the first kind of the first act. Um, I don't think it really introduces that world very well. It, it, um, it's a bit odd. Uh, but Gal Gadot is great. She was great. Um, I think she really embodied the role, and and um, and I felt like it was a bit of a waste to have her and be be you know Batman versus Superman because I think this is the proper introduction to character, um, and 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 you know it, like all the unlike all the other bloated Hollywood blockbusters, I felt I left this film wanting more. I wanted to see more of her, and I felt like the film stopped at a wrong place. It feels like. Like you said, there's a huge time gap, and it feels like there's an, at least one or two more films to fill the gap between before she even has to show up in Batman vs Superman. Um, because you know, there's World War Two, y'all. Like, what does she do during? Yo, like, what does she do? How does she fight the Nazis? You know, I mean, um, and those guys, you know, they 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 fought for a while. You know, that wasn't yeah. like Wonder well, Woman didn't exactly go in there and wipe them out immediately. So I know the original story, the original comic book was in World War Two. So I found it weird that they set the film in World War One here. Yeah, I think part of it is, I mean. It... Because she's so active with Sword and Shield here, it's hard not to draw parallels between them positioning her as a kind of Captain America-style character. You know, a character who kind of starts out in this earlier era, even though he was in World War II with the Nazis. I guess they figured they didn't want to be that close to Captain America with what they were doing. Um, and so they, you know, pushed it back. But then, yeah, you do have this big gap. We don't know what happens. That may be the, the grounds for more films. But the real narrative problem, which starts out at the end of Batman v Superman with this photo that Bruce Wayne has uncovered of a picture of her and uh, a team in World War One, 
and then him, you know, kind of, you know, giving that photo back to her in this film as kind of the, the sort of narrative carryover of what's happening in the modern day to kind of saying, okay, here's the original. So you don't need to worry about, you know, other people finding out about this. So we know she's not been this kind of global, you know, recognizable figure in the world, right? So she can't be super high profile in anything she's doing, like leaping out of buildings and flying and, 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 you know, saving the day and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's just weird because the way the film ends, you're not really sure what she's doing, but it doesn't really gel with what they've established, you know, with, with Batman v Superman, because it's like, well, Superman's kind of the, you know, you, you know, Batman's there in the city as kind of this vigilante and then Superman's this big globally powerful alien. So, but nobody seems to know about her. Right. And maybe we'll get some more understanding of that once they get into Justice League, because they do have to introduce, of course, the Flash and uh, and Aquaman as well, and sort of their stories as, I guess, more localized hero stories. But she's been around all this time, and there's only been one photo of her, right? So what's she been doing? You know, she's been teaching a university class? I mean, <laughs> working at the Louvre? I, it's, you know, what's what's going on with that? Yeah, exactly. A movie opens her walking into the Louvre, and like, yeah, I mean, people who work at the Louvre, well, I, I guess whatever. But it it's weird that, of course, remember if we remember from Batman v Superman, she's also a better detective than Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is weird because you know Batman is supposed to be this great detective, but actually Ben Affleck pay, plays him as like the worst amateur detective ever. Yeah, he's, if I remember uh, correctly. <laughs> he's but, rusty. Um, he's rusty. <laughs> It's definitely rusty. Um, so it left me wanting more. Like, like I want to see at least one or two more Wonder Woman films before I even get to Justice League, mm. uh, because we all know Justice League, Justice League is gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna save time on exposition. That we're not gonna see any more of, of Wonder Woman's exposition because there's so many, there's so many characters that have to build. So, and I found the story of this one already too simplified. You know how they sort of, they, they, they go to the war zone and they just sort of walk into the trenches. Mm. Like within days, I thought that was a bit too simple, and and that's why I liked about Captain America actually the origin film because it shows that Captain America took time to build up his reputation as a superhero. That you know nothing, things didn't start well for him, even though he was pushed into the to the to the to the, to the, uh, the battlefield. Um, and it took time to tell that story, or or that that story took time to develop. Whereas here, I think the whole story only takes place over about a week or two weeks. Yeah. So if, it's if very, that, very yeah. odd. Yeah, exactly. So you're trying to build this big legendary character and it's like you only get like her two week mission. Um, so it's so it's it's almost too simple for me, the story, like like uh, like you kind of pointed out earlier. So it's not great. It has a lot of flaws. And um, and, you know, of course, it's great to have a female director behind this, the, the you know, to do a superhero film. I'm always, you know, I approve of that. I'm not going to read too much into the whole female gaze, male gaze thing, because I think a female director, you know, especially on these type of any director on these type of films don't really get much of a directorial voice. Um, so, so I'm just glad that, you know, a female director got to tell the story of Wonder Woman. It's great. It's, it's what we call the superhero that we, we, we don't, what is it? It's not the superhero we deserve. It's not the superhero movie we deserve, but it's a superhero movie we need right now, taking uh, the Dark Knight. Um, so I'm glad that it got made with Patty Jenkins, and I hope that it would give um, 
open the doors for more female directors and of course minority directors as well to take on superhero films um so it means symbolically it means more um to me than the actual quality of the film uh even if the film had turned out bad i would have been i would have been totally supportive i think every director should have a chance to make a crappy dc universe movie (laughs) not the snack snyder so um so I'm an equal opportunity direct kind of person. Um, so so I'm glad that this film got made. And and uh, whether it's good or not, I would support the film getting made anyway with a female director. Um, but so I'm just glad that it turned out, you know, not bad. Uh, it's not great, but it's not bad. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Bower of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us over on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Uh, you can read my uh, new site, uh, Asia in Cinema. That's www.asiaincinema.com. Uh, please do follow uh, Asia Cinema on Twitter and on Facebook because sometimes I do put little news pieces on those uh, social media platforms rather than rather than the site. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm also uh, at The Golden Rock. That's one word, The Golden Rock. You can read my work every month on uh, Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazines on Cathay Pacific Airway and Cathay Dragon Airline as well. Um, you can also read the digital version of the Discovery website on uh, CathayPacific.com slash Discovery. I think uh, my piece uh, about um, Spanish film The Fury of a Patient Man is already on the website. Uh, and of course, uh, other pieces by our other writers will be on later this month. So please do check it out. Um, and of course, you can email me at kevin at asiaincinema.com. All right. Excellent. Also, as just a quick reminder, please do check out our friends over at Podcast on Fire Network, um, where they're doing you know lots of good work on not just Hong Kong films, but Asian films in general. Our next episode, 230, um, looks like on the West screen side of things, I've got penciled in Tom Cruise in The Mummy. Uh, I don't know if I want to watch that film, honestly. (laughs) Um, There's there's a lot of other interesting stuff uh, we were talking about before the show. I think uh, Korean film Lucid Dream has just dropped on Netflix. Um, Again, I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan. I'm kind of mixed as to whether I really want to go out and and watch this or not. So I might be talking about that or something else. Um, Kevin, what, what do you think is going to be on deck for East Stream stuff? Ah, yesterday I went out to watch the Taiwan film, uh, DD Stream, which has already become the highest grossing um, local film of the year in Taiwan. Uh, so I'll be talking about that film next week because we don't have any local films until God of War and 77 Heartbreaks. I think I already talked about 77 Heartbreaks on the show, right? I think I reviewed it. Reviewed it. No, I no. haven't. No, not yet. 
Okay, so I guess that's the Osaka film I didn't talk about. But um, so I'll be re- so in two weeks I'll be talking about Seventy Seven Heartbreaks or God of War. But next week I would like to talk about the Taiwan film DD Stream. All right. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen West Screen podcast saying, we wish you good Netflixing or viewing or whatever, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. And again, go Warriors.